0: trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So glad you could join me today. I'm going to make it very worth your while. Let me first start by thanking the sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. Wouldn't be here without them. HSLammo.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, as well as Services.com. So if you're tuning in for the first time, you may be wondering, okay, what exactly is this guy all about? And in a nutshell, my job here is not to tell you what to think. I'm not here to persuade you that everything you know is wrong and only I can be trusted to tell you what's right. I'm just here to encourage anyone who puts value on truth to continue on that path, to continue thinking as clearly and independently as you possibly can. There's a lot of deception out there today. And and on top of the deception, okay, there's outright gaslighting and lying to our faces. We never tra- locked things down. What? Huh? We never tried to force people to take a jab. What? what are you talking about? Okay, there's a lot of that. But uh, there's also... Some some very interesting behind-the-scenes stuff. Algorithm manipulation. Well, you know, that sounds a little too close to the truth. Let's make sure that this one gets buried under the pile so that uh, nobody accidentally encounters something that might reflect badly on the people in power. That seems to happen a lot. By the way, i got to say to Bill, who listens to me in Meridian, Idaho, Bill, thank you for, for the suggestion. He sent me an email yesterday saying, I've noticed that when I... Google or when I uh, search, you know he doesn't necessarily use Google even on other search engines, the Brian Hyde show. It's pretty tough to find. You can find instances of, you know, the podcast episodes here but um yeah, it's it's very likely this uh, this content is uh, it's it's threatening to people in power particularly those who may be abusing that power. Now, look, I'm small stuff, okay? I'm not, I'm not even a, a small fish in a... I'm not even a small fish in a small pond. I'm, I'm barely even on the radar. But I have this feeling, and, and this is why I do what I do on a daily basis. I have this sense that there are people out there who are looking for truth. And while I'm not the fountain of truth... I do make a pretty decent effort every single day to find it. And insofar as I can find articles or commentaries or or guests who reflect what I think is, is a more truthful approach to what's happening, I will share those with you and let you decide for yourself. Does this information add up or not? And so my goal is just simply to try to give you the very best that I can find. And if if we have to fight algorithms and other, you know, efforts to try to censor or otherwise push that information down, so be it. I trust that the right people are finding this program. That would mean you are one of them. And I trust that you can do with this information what is best in your interest. So with that in mind, hopefully that isn't tooting my horn too much, let's let's jump on here. Um, I want to start with a commentary from J.B. Shirk. And I want to just kind of remind you, there are those of us who remember what life was like before the Internet. And if we think about it, I think most of us would attest that it has really changed our world. J.B. Shirk points out that the war for Internet freedom has begun, and he makes the point that we cannot allow the governments to take away that freedom. He says, I've heard it said many times over the years that President Bill Clinton and his inner circle were apprehensive about the rise of the Internet right from its infancy. While university clubs and lonely tech pioneers were generating public excitement by connecting people all over the planet, Clinton and his crew feared the Internet for what it signified, which was an end to the government's monopoly over information. If just any old citizen could broadcast news to the world over cyberspace, none of the government's traditional methods for regulating knowledge would continue to work. Having a White House press corps, after all, has always had little to do with keeping government power in check, and an awful lot to do with keeping potentially damaging information in-house, supervised, and under control. What better way to monitor and shape the news of tomorrow than to stuff all the White House correspondence into one small space for direct and easy manipulation? Should CBS or NBC or the New York Times stumble upon a story too embarrassing for those in power? Well, there's always some bargain to be made or threat to be leveled that could keep that information bottled up. So Shirk is saying the free press, in other words, has always been filled with information gatekeepers, no less corruptible than any other humans and just as capable of intentionally keeping the public in the dark as they are of letting in some occasional light. For what it's worth, Clinton's worries were warranted and a complete unknown named Matt Drudge nearly took down his presidency with a story about a stained blue dress that several prestige news outlets had refused to cover. The somewhat secret war over information would never be the same. So while we watch government-induced censorship increasingly squeeze the free flow of information today, it's easy to throw up our hands in despair and presume that the light of freedom will inexorably dim. But J.B. Shirk says, I encourage you instead instead rather to see government-engineered threats to free speech as further evidence that both totalitarianism and freedom are on the march. I mean, he's got a point here. They wouldn't need to push back and propagandize us if free speech wasn't working, would they? Something to think about. Shirk says powerful institutions do not work this hard to silence voices unless they are deeply afraid. The push for control is inextricably linked to the perception of fear. The harder that authorities push to control what we say, the more closely they reveal their own fear. That's a sign of weakness. Consider what's actually transpired these last three decades as the Internet connected billions. By any measure, freedom of speech expanded greatly, and the spread of information transformed the world. Not only did a virtually unregulated Internet provide a brand new canvas for the expression of ideas, but also the traditional gatekeepers, who'd long claimed authority to deem what is newsworthy, lost their inherent power. The news cycle is no longer controlled by three or four nightly news anchors, all echoing similar talking points in similarly stern voices. A handful of editors, producers and publishing houses no longer exclusively decide what the public should know. In the Wild West of the Internet, information has been abundantly available and the people have decided what information matters most. Far from the Washington Post's self-serving braggadocio that's in the business of that it's in the business of saving democracy from darkness. It is the Internet that has usurped powers once miserly hoarded by the Post, and it's delivered those powers to the people. Now, he says, notice that two interlocking public revelations naturally emerged from the rise of the Internet. Number one, an open community of free citizens proved it had a tremendous amount of knowledge to share. And number two, this flood of information proved how effectively traditional news gatekeepers had always quietly exercised power over citizens. People who had watched nightly news all their lives started to see for the first time the subtle and not-so-subtle biases of the news anchors who controlled the spigots on the flow of information. It became possible for ordinary people to understand that news broadcasts and printed stories were far from purely objective presentations of facts. It also became clear that the stories told by well-known reporters often came packaged with personal and political agendas meant to shape minds and to shift opinions. The internet's fertile territory for free speech awakened a lot of people to just how much they had always been deceptively controlled. Now the story could have ended there. He says one day, most publicly available information was controlled exclusively by a cabal of bureaucrats, politicians, academics, newspaper editors, and reporters. And the next day, a kind of democratic revolution in the free flow of information forever changed the world. Walls and protocols, gatekeepers and specialists, all came crashing down or disappeared in the wake of a new technology that both ran on and promoted personal liberty. Nearly all knowledge, ever written down anywhere in the history of the world, became obtainable and eventually accessible from tiny pocket computers that also served as decent phones. A triumph for democracy, right? An unbelievable achievement for the West's millennia-long advance toward protecting individual freedoms, expanding public education, and respecting free will, right? The Internet changed the world, and in doing so, became a first-rate repository for posting funny pictures of cats. And he says it's that last bit that guaranteed the story wouldn't end there. Not the cat pictures, but the changing the world part. You cannot unleash a new technology that affects the geopolitical balance of power without expecting a reaction from the stalwarts of the old system, who stand to lose everything. Now, given that the Internet emerged at the tail end of the Cold War and perfectly encapsulated the triumph of American freedom over Soviet tyranny, it is perfectly understandable to assume that the old system being replaced was state-centric communism and that the new system spreading around the world was classical Western liberalism. That is, after all, how the Internet was trumpeted for years as a means to break through the remnants of the Soviet system, a way to penetrate through the closed-off one-party state of the communist Chinese. But he says, in reality, however, Internet freedom didn't pit Western liberals against totalitarian communists. It pitted the world's governing elites against ordinary citizens. That's right on the money, by the way. Now, there's more to this article. I'm going to come back to it here on on the other side of the break, but... Does that not ring true this is one of the things that, that's so exciting to me is it was fun to watch those gatekeepers stand there looking around stern authoritarian hey don't you know who i am not realizing that the walls that once you know led to those gates had quietly been removed yeah the gates are still there but where there are no walls nobody needs to walk through those gates so hey good luck with that job enjoy yourself can i bring you a book or something
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Quick shout-out here for Garage Door Pros located in St. George, Utah. Serving southwestern Utah as well as Mesquite, Nevada and Colorado City, Arizona. These are the ones who install, service, and repair garage doors commercially as well as residentially. And they really respond quickly. They take good care of their customers. I've, I've had their owner, Seth uh, Schultz, on the program before. He is a wonderful individual, a great businessman, but really focuses on providing extremely great service to his customers. So you should probably find out more. If you live in that area of St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, or Colorado City, call 435-525-2773 or visit their website at garage com. So just to finish up with this article from J.B. Shirk on the war for Internet freedom has just begun. I think he makes a great point that it, the Internet didn't pit Western liberals against, you know, totalitarian communists so much as it pitted the world's governing elites against ordinary citizens. And if you have a hard time, you know, accepting the idea, oh, they would never be against us, come on, look look back over your shoulder at about the last three years and tell me if you can still believe that. Shirk says long-held powers used to control and manipulate information have been up for grabs for 30 years, but only now have governments succeeded in creating the kind of online infrastructure for reclaiming all they've lost. In other words, without Google, Facebook and Twitter to corral free thoughts, they could never push censorship so openly. Without the creation of Apple's and Microsoft's controlled digital marketplaces, viewpoint discrimination would not be possible. And without the increased monopolization of Internet service providers, cloud computing facilities and online banking and commerce giants, regulatory agencies could never throttle the free flow of information so unabashedly. For 30 years, governments and institutions have slowly constructed a crystal prison of sorts, a beautiful digital world that draws the masses in only to control them. It's a system designed behind the alluring facade of freedom, yet ultimately grounded in the centralized government of suffocating tyranny. Now, he says, to be sure, there are many people who will gladly accept their new chains. They'll hand back their Internet freedoms and free speech for as little as a shiny new phone and a promise never again to question what they're told. Yet hundreds of millions, if not billions of people have learned to think more independently than ever before these last three decades. They've seen the curtain of controlled speech. They've seen it pulled aside. They know that corrupt government actors manipulate their thoughts from the other side and now that they know what they know a great many of these people will obstinately refuse to ever be lulled back to sleep the internet helped free the world but he says governments want that freedom back and what happens next is for the people to decide that really resonates probably because that's the realm in which i work and operate but you know it's it's quite it's quite a privilege to to be able to speak truth and you know, I, I know that we're programmed to think of it in terms of, well, but your audience doesn't number in the millions now, does it? It doesn't need to. That's the beautiful thing about truth. Truth in the hands of the right people, even if it's a tiny majority, tiny minority rather, can do the trick. In fact, the majority... Typically, historically, the masses have not been the ones you want to lean on, you know, for, for your moral support. They're very easily misled. They're, they're much more self-centered. They're about entertainment. They're about short-term gratification. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, commercials and TV shows and, and even movies jump from scene to scene to scene. You know, things shift very quickly because our attention qu- it wanes so quickly. So you kind of have to train yourself out of it. Anyway, moving on. Here is an article that really caught my attention. And, I, and this is, I'm going to just say this up front. This is not a plea for, hey, let's all take a vow of poverty, okay? But between rising inflation and political and economic instability, I feel pretty safe in saying there's a good chance that all of us are going to see a noticeable adjustment in our lifestyles. Jeffrey Folks has a worthwhile take on a really... This is this is an outside-the-box kind of subject, but it's about appreciating what you have. It's titled, A Conservative Life. And he says, I woke up this morning thinking of how blessed my life is. Now, he says, I live a simple life in a small house on a quiet street. I own a few possessions that I've inherited or acquired over a lifetime, but nothing of much value. I drive a 10-year-old Toyota, which will probably last the rest of my time as a driver. He says, I obtain much of what I need, including most of my clothes from garage and church, church sales, and I obtain books and videos from the public library at no cost. He says, I'm a vegan. I fast from 16 to 20 hours every day. I eat vegetables, beans, grains, a few fruits and homegrown herbs picked fresh daily. For exercise, I walk and lift weights and I practice deep breathing and meditation. I am a Christian who tries to practice my faith and who prays many times every day. I love to read, write, play, and compose music. I have a small group of friends, good, ordinary people who share my interests. I choose to live as I do so as to remain free. Whoa. And as a conservative with libertarian leanings, he says, I believe in self-responsibility and freedom of choice, and I accept the consequences of my choices. I don't have a lot of money to spend. I don't take trips or purchase entertainment. I don't have a smartphone, and I don't wear new clothes or drive a new car. Now, he says, there are many ways to live as a conservative, and my way, life of simplicity and frugality is just one of these. What they share is a belief in individual liberty, a belief that by definition requires strict limitations on governmental powers. James Madison was wise when he stated at the Virginia Convention to ratify the federal constitution that there are more instances of the abridgment of the freedom of the people by gradual and silent encroachments of those in power than by violent and sudden usurpations. Well, those gradual and silent encroachments are more pronounced now than ever. And from here, he talks about how government at all levels combined shouldn't be claiming more than 5% of a nation's GDP. In fact, for the first 180 years of our history, up until the administration of Woodrow Wilson, America's federal government operated on some 2% of GDP, most of it generated from tariffs. As of 2020, U.S. taxes at the local, state, and federal levels Amounted to twenty five point five percent of GDP. And it's not just a matter of how much government collects, but also what it does with that money. So he made the choice because he's frustrated with the growth of the state. He says, you know i've I've had to uh, I've had to learn to live beneath my means. He says, I can't be fired or intimidated at work because I'm retired. I can't be made homeless unless my house is seized or taxed away. I can't be threatened with want because there's very little that I need except for a few vegetables and grains, some of which I grow myself. Now, according to Gallup, only 42% of Americans rate their lives as very happy, and in comparison with other nations, the U.S. ranks 19th in happiness rankings. That's interesting because happiness has declined significantly from its peak of 55% in 2003, and the intrusion of government and government-allied media is one cause— Now, Jeffrey Folk says, ironically, I'm happier in the frugal way that I live than I would be with a typical middle-class American lifestyle. I don't worry about what to buy and when. My latest purchase was a five-pound bag of dried pinto beans. I don't dress for special occasions or for dining out because I stay home or I socialize with friends who share my values. I don't get frustrated driving in traffic because I maybe drive 10 miles a day and at times when the roads are less crowded. This is a guy after my own heart, by the way. I don't compete by displaying my wealth because there is none. And I have one of the most precious gifts of all, time to read, write, and think freely. So his point is there's nothing exceptional about my conservative life. Anyone who wants to be free can work long enough to obtain a small pension and eventually social security. And with these, he can live as he wishes as long as he restricts his wants and needs. But notice, he says, there's really nothing that I want or lack. I look forward to every day. Every day brings surprises in a different sunrise and stretching or walking on an empty stomach and feeling the lightness of it, the pungent taste of fresh herbs from my garden, the company of true friends. See, he's learned to appreciate what he has more than what he's hoping to obtain at some point in time. That's a really interesting shift in how to see the world. But the older I get and the more experience I get, I'm convinced that that's the direction that true happiness can be found. You don't have to agree, by the way. I'm not insisting. This is the only way. But I thought it was an interesting enough way of looking at things. I felt like it was worth sharing with you. I hope you can appreciate it.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, thanks for being part of our growing audience of Wrong Thinkers. If you would like to subscribe to my show notes, I'll send you the show notes, complete with links to all the different articles and commentators that I access on a daily basis, as well as other resources for wrong thinkers. And absolutely free of charge, I won't share your email or anything. It does ask down at the bottom of the show notes page. It asks you to subscribe. Just go to thebryanhideshow.com, click on show notes, pick a day, subscribe, and I will drop this into your email inbox each day that I do the show. By the way, as an added bonus, I'm also going to throw in my little daily feature, Hide in Plain Sight, which is just simply overlooked or sometimes uh, not so obvious common sense or principles that nonetheless make our lives better. Very non-political, but also uh, just empowering. Inspiring, Something to, to give you, you know, something that, that's more uplifting than, oh, by the way, here's more bad news. <laughs> now, springboarding on what I was talking about in the last segment about uh, that, that conservative life, that being willing to be happier with what you have than, than being happy contingent on what you're hoping to get, you know, at some point down the road. I don't really spend a lot of time focusing on entertainment like I once did. I mean, look, I remember the days where I looked forward to, wow, a movie coming out, I'm going to have to go see that. Hey, you guys want to go catch a show this weekend? And and movies were kind of the primary way of let's go get entertained and let's let's have some fun. Okay, Blockbuster, Redbox, you know, there were ways to bring those movies right to your home. But more and more, I find myself just not really appreciating what Hollywood produces right now. Truth be told, most of what they produce to me just looks like a woke sermon wrapped in a very thin veneer of entertainment. And I've got a great article here from Brandon Smith. Why is leftist entertainment so divisive and devoid of imagination? I think he has a good take on this. He says, when's the last time you saw an original story out of Hollywood that was worth watching? Not counting Top Gun, Maverick. When's the last time you experienced creative storytelling that didn't involve the co-option and retelling of a previous work? When's the last time you saw a protagonist that was relatable, interesting and endearing? Hell, he says, what well, was the last time you actually were excited to go to the movies or relax in front of the television to watch something new? Reboots, soft reboots, remakes, live action remakes, reimagining, gender swapping, race swapping, rainbow washing, making classic straight characters gay for virtue signal points. This is the new this is a list of new media tropes that have invaded entertainment in the past 6 years. And all of them have been used so frequently that productions can now be quickly identified as woke propaganda by a mere two-minute trailer. And you know the fascinating thing? Almost all of these productions fail miserably. In recent weeks alone, we've seen the attempted uh, rewoke rewriting of history with The Woman King, which fell flat at the box office after opening week, not even making enough money to cover production and advertising costs. Then there was the gay romantic comedy Bros, which imploded, causing the lead actor, Billy Eichner, to flip out on, the so- on social media and blame homophobia. Somehow he believed that a movie filled with gay orgies was going to appeal to mainstream audiences. Eichner went on to argue that people must go see his movie in order to make a political statement. That was the same argument made by woman king actress Viola Davis. Don't see the movie because it's well made. See the movie so you can stick it to conservatives. And Brandon Smith asks, well, why not just tell a good story instead? We've seen the biggest budget TV series in history, Amazon's The Rings of Power, crumble in the ratings with its intersectional messaging. We've seen the cancellation of the gay Superman comic book title, Son of Kal-El, likely due to low sales. Marvel shows and films are consistently bringing in weak audience members and the social justice warrior disaster that is Disney Star Wars can't write a hit production to save their lives. The bottom line... Consumers have near zero interest in leftist media. Brandon says, as I've said in the past, get woke, go broke. It's not just a mantra. It's a rule these days. But why are leftists in entertainment so incapable of producing anything resembling exciting content? Why do they suck so bad? Well, they follow a losing formula. And that formula works something like this. Number one. Co-opt a classic franchise or character that has pre-existing audience appeal. Never try to create anything original if you can help it. Number two, market the new film, TV series, comic, etc. as a return to nostalgia to get audiences excited. Number three, get rid of as many straight, white, male or male characters as possible and replace them with token diversity. Also, for some reason, he says they like to get rid of all the redheads. Hmm, interesting. Number four, portray men as weak and incompetent. Portray white people as stupid or racist. Portray black people as constant victims. Portray women with overtly masculine character traits, but also as victims at the same time. Make everyone in charge a woman or gay or both. If a man is in charge, make sure he is being controlled by a woman. Make sure your main character is constantly lecturing everyone else in the audience about leftist virtues. Number five, make sure there's a perfect pie chart of ethnicity in every single scene despite the statistics and demographics of a place or time. It doesn't matter if the story's set in an ancient Viking village in the north of Europe or in the elitist estates of Victorian England. Minorities must be represented as main characters despite all historical fact. If a classic male character cannot be changed without alienating potential customers away from spending their money, Pretend he's a major part of the story to trick people into the theaters, then make him weak and pathetic, the opposite of a hero, or just kill him. Steal plot points, story beats, and even dialogue directly from other, more creative films and productions. Pretend you came up with all that stuff on your own, or do a reboot and copy an older production directly while adding your own woke changes wherever possible. Number eight, Now market the product as a reimagined version, updated for modern audiences as justification for abandoning all canon. Number nine, immediately start attacking anyone who might criticize the product before they ever do so. Make the customers and fans into villains if they refuse to give you their money. Accuse them of bigotry and blame your inevitable failure on racism, sexism, misogyny, etc. It wasn't your fault that your story bombed. It's the fault of the incels and the boomers and all the uncultured swine out there filled with hate. They sabotaged you. They are the problem. Number 10, rinse and repeat. Yes, it sounds pathetic. But that is the state of entertainment today, and it's been a pervasive problem for several years now. The industry's always had a bit of a progressive problem, but in the past, this was balanced out by more conservative uh, business interests. Today, Brandon points out the business interests are the same zealots as the production interests but beyond that liberals used to be more creative in general now they're devoid of all imagination and he wonders why brandon smith says my theory is that as progressives have turned increasingly to the social justice cult a wave of narcissism has suffocated any and all potential for creative freedom even if they had it once it's all gone now Narcissists tend to have no imagination, and the woke ideology is essentially a religion for narcissists. Social justice is a system of belief that uses victim status as a currency. It tells its adherents that each of them is so special and so unique that the world revolves around them and their identity, that their personal truth is more important than objective truth. It tells them that they are entitled to respect and admiration from everyone regardless of their lack of accomplishment, lack of knowledge, lack of talent, lack of beauty, lack of intelligence, lack of experience, lack of propriety, lack of restraint, lack of kindness, etc. Now he says these people have no shame and they think this is a virtue, a strength. You're supposed to idolize them for it and if you don't, well then you must be a fascist. How are leftists supposed to compose stories that hold our attention and touch our souls when they're so self-absorbed. And from here he goes through what storytelling requires in order to be successful, and these are things that leftists have no concept of. Things like the ability to self-reflect, but also the ability to write characters outside yourself. An inherent sense of story flow. And also you can't tell a story with the intent to lie and propagandize, because it's selfish, it disrupts the narrative flow. Stories are also built on basic archetypes. And if you aren't familiar with archetypes, these are inherent psychological constructs that help human beings relate to each other and also help us to relate to foundational morals and principles. He talks about how subverting expectations is cowardly and lazy. Truly talented storytellers can meet audience expectations while surprising them along the way. And finally, you're not entitled to an audience. The audience owes you nothing. Look, either your story is good and they relate to it on an emotional level, or your story is garbage and they don't relate to it. It's as simple as that. People are not required to consume your product to make a political statement, and they're not evil for refusing to spend their money on propaganda. So if you enter into storytelling with intent to create conflict with your audience, you're probably a bad storyteller. He says media and entertainment are the modern method of passing on ideas and exploring debates within our culture. And when only one extreme viewpoint is represented within our story lexicon... This creates imbalance and chaos in society. He says the woke movement has utterly poisoned our cultural well. It's incapable of addressing the basic functions of reflection. We cannot look at ourselves honestly through stories when liars and narcissists are in charge of the storytelling apparatus. Pretty powerful stuff. It's not enough to complain about the problem, by the way, he says. We have to actually do something about it in order for things to change. What does that mean for you and me? Well, it means we need to step up as storytellers ourselves. He says nothing pisses off the leftists more than when you offer the public an alternative to their narrative. Well, that certainly rings true. You can find a link to this in my show notes at show.com.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This
1: is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, a shout-out to HSLMO.com as well as LifesavingFood.com and MonticelloCollege.org. Links to each of these uh, sponsors is found in my show notes, and I wish you'd click on, it, click on those links and uh, take a look at what they have to offer. might just be something that you're looking for. So two quick articles to, uh, to close out today. Um, first one is from Judge Andrew Napolitano. This is a topic that I've, I've touched on many times over the last few years. But the, the question is, why does the proper role of government matter? Why, does it, why do you keep coming back to this? Why does it matter? Well, Judge Napolitano explains it matters because without it, your government or people within your government might be tempted to claim the right to kill people without due process. If it believes that they are guilty with near certainty of being you know a bad person. Yes, we're talking due process, extrajudicial executions. And I don't know if you were aware of this, not a lot of press on it, but last week, President Biden secretly reaffirmed his own self-willed authority to kill persons in other countries, so long as the CIA and its military counterparts have near certainty that the target of the homicide is a member of a terrorist organization. Now, don't be fooled by the idea, well, they're only going to do this in other countries. They claim that same Authority here in the US as well, or if heaven forbid you travel abroad as an American, you know, that's not going to limit this gov- this government's claim to to uh, wipe you out via drone strike or whatever if they think that you are a bad person. Why does that matter? Well, as Judge Napolitano explains, there is no near certainty standard in the law. The phrase is oxymoronic. it defies a rational explanation, like nearly pregnant. You're either pregnant, or not. One is either certain or not. There is no near certainty there. But he says the creation of this standard underscores the lamentable absence of the rule of law in the Biden administration and in the administrations of its immediate, three immediate predecessors, each of which had deployed drones to kill people who were not engaged in acts of violence at the time of their killing, irrespective of the near certainty of their membership in some terrorist organization. He explains, terrorist can't be a standard for murder because it is subjective. To King George III, George Washington was a terrorist. To the poor folks in Libya and Syria, to the popularly elected governments toppled by CIA-inspired violence, to the innocents tortured at black sites around the world, well, the CIA is a terrorist organization. This is a wonderful article. I hope you'll take the time to, to look at it no person should be targeted or may morally be targeted for death by government for any reason unless it is presently necessary to stop that person from actively killing another. But he cites a number of cases in which uh, presidential killings were used to terrify political opponents and civilian targets were helpless and the killers were lauded as heroes. So today, American troops, special forces are on the ground in Ukraine showing Ukrainian forces how to use American weapons to kill Russian troops. That was done by a secret presidential order that's never been publicly acknowledged. And these bullied and terrified Russian conscripts pose no threat whatsoever to life, liberty or property in America. But your president believes that uh, he can kill because he can get away with it. sure appreciate Judge, Judge Napolitano being that, uh, that voice of reason, pushing back against, well, but we have to do this because, because Putin. Sometimes the, the, the propaganda is so cartoonish. You just got to step back and wonder, really? Who's the bigger threat? I'll give you a hint. It's the one that demands tribute from you every single year, come about April 15th. Just a little something to think about. All right. And a final note here. It may take a while, but the truth always eventually comes out. Got a great article from James Patrick Riley, and it's a message for the people who stood by or who actively supported the authoritarians who have been working so hard to take our freedoms these last few years. The future is coming for some of you is the name of the article. And he says history won't remember the cowards and collaborators of our day with any more kindness than it recalls those of former times. He says the nice thing about the long view of history is that it's a beautiful picture. It can take decades, even centuries, but eventually all the truth comes out. Arrogant dimwits in positions of power, so insufferable during their reigns, become the subject of acid biopics and tell all biographies. The people who apologized for them and benefited from their patronage wind up looking sinister or criminal, even to their own grandchildren. He says my Greek grandfather had a memory of Nazi collaborators being run off a cliff to their deaths shortly after the allied victory. The women who slept with the oppressors got their hair cut off and their faces rubbed in the ash and their naked bodies put on display. In the long history of in the long story rather of history's final justice the American revolution represents one of the few instances where for the most part losers were graciously forgiven for betraying their neighbors but they had to live with the shame of having been wrong for the rest of their lives. Imagine a July 4th celebration seen perpetually as a reminder of your own bad judgment. That would have been rough for the Tories, wouldn't it? More broadly, though, he says the people who nurtured tyranny with their silence have to live with their cowardice, though it's no longer given the state's seal of approval. Everyone knows who didn't speak when their neighbors were carried away. All the cowards will tremble at the great white throne when they can't say the words, when did we visit you in prison? Because Jesus knows the answer. You never did. They were silent when they carried away the Jews, the political prisoners, the men and women of conscience, and they justified their cowardice by hiding behind their children or their position or their forlorn promise to act decisively someday. He says, there's a fellow on YouTube who chronicles the final hours of men within the Nazi high command. One day, they have the final authority over the very lives, bodies, and fortunes of their fellow citizens. And the next day, they're scrambling for a new set of clothing, a new identity, and safe passage to a hut in a field somewhere on the other side of the globe. Most of them never evade justice, and even in their final, frantic last moments of bad acting and borrowed clothing, it just makes them look all the more hideous and culpable. So this rhythm of history is as old as scripture. In fact, he says God gives it his approval. The false friends of Job, the fellows who got all high and holy as they refused to believe Job's Job's lament, had to face the potential wrath of both God and Job himself, who was given the final authority to condemn or forgive them. Sometimes God allows his children to share in the glory of condemning false friends or executing wicked rulers. Ask Moses or Ehud or the prophet Samuel or Oliver Cromwell or George Washington about that. Unfortunately, the power of the present, the weight of the current regime, can be blinding. We have a bad habit of assuming that the men with badges and guns and the academic credibility are actually standing on the right side of history. We're quite capable of quieting a conscience that puts us on the dangerous side of the law, or even our loved one's approval. The false wisdom of an ignorant mob can be frightening. So, speaking to that mob, he says, if you are one of the people who said absolutely nothing when COVID public health policy shut down your neighbor's restaurant and their life's work, you will be seen by history as a coward and not just a run-of-the-mill coward. You will be seen as so frightened for your own stinking hide you were willing to take the food out of your neighbor's mouth. It's not like you didn't have the courage to face machine gun fire or restrain a bully with your fists. You were afraid of a microscopic virus so weak it killed less than three in a thousand. For that, you were willing to take children out of school, destroy jobs, shutter churches, cancel graduations, isolate families, and hunker down behind your laptop condemning, even censoring, anyone who didn't agree. In the history of pitiful, blinking germophobes, you will be seen as the most pitiful and wretched of all. You wanted the world to stop because you were nervous about a little scratch at the back of your throat. If you were among the people who witnessed the January 6th protest in Washington, D.C., and you characterized the entire event as insurrection, you are a special kind of coward. You are moronic ignavus, both a coward and a moron. You know that millions of people did not fight police or break windows or steal government property. You know that by comparison, the June 2020 George Floyd protest in Washington Washington, D.C., where the leader of the free world was forced to take sanctuary in a White House bunker, we're far closer to the definition of insurrection. But you're perfectly willing to apply your own prejudice to the busy work of enslaving your neighbors. You are willing to rat out anyone who even exercised their First Amendment rights on January 6th. You want them all in jail. For that, Sunday you will be seen by history as having more in common with Adolf Eichmann than Rosa Parks. Likewise, he takes on fans of cancel culture. Do you actually enjoyed ending, enjoy ending the trade or employment of anyone who isn't sufficiently woke by your standards? Well, you will go down in history as a hideous busybody without a life of your own. You don't actually know what you believe you know, but you're anxious to be seen as tolerant by directing intolerance at the currently approved enemies. Your grandchildren will laugh at the memory of you running around perpetually in defense of people who never really wanted your help. This is a pretty good dressing down. Now, did you speak out against COVID insanity? Did you lose a job for not taking the jab? Did you defend the little shop that endured a culture culture can- can- cancel culture campaign? Rather, did you risk the wrath of your relatives for speaking truth? The mob didn't accept. Were you brave enough to be a father, not a false friend? Take comfort. When we sing the words, the land of the free and home of the brave, we're thinking of you. This is the Brian Hyde show.